0: Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is The Journey to Transformation. Welcome.
1: Welcome. How are you? It's been tough. Some of you might know that my family immigrated from the Philippines to Maui. We've had the fires that have been going on for the last few days. So it's just been a little bit tough. I've been on, on the chats with my, we've got a big family group chat. So it's just been sort of like trying to keep in touch and figure out what to do. And I think like...
0: Do your family are okay?
1: Yeah, everybody's okay. They've got their things. They've got their homes. I think it's all of the stuff that you're interacting with anytime you're in a humanitarian crisis, which is what they're in at the moment, is that you might be fine from a practical sense, but there's so much that's been lost. Like um, Lahaina is a historical town. It's been there for for decades there's the the oldest running hotel that's gone there's like all of these kind of historical things i was watching a um some some news coverage and they were sitting in the backdrop of a place that i've played many times as a child where i've brought friends and family and as an adult was there only a couple of years ago and that's completely gone so it's just this so some of you may know that i come from military family so we've moved around a lot my my Home in Maui is only is the only constant that I've ever had in terms of like when people say, oh, well, where are you from? I always say, well, my family immigrated from the Philippines to Maui, so I call Maui home. People were still struggling because of COVID as a place where the hospitality industry is so massive and so important. And, and this, like Lahaina is a very, very popular town and without fail, you don't, go to Maui without going to Lahaina so in terms of it being a a pretty significant industry or center of industry it's yeah it's it's really hard and you just, just so yeah it's been a bit tough it's been sad it's been sad to be so far away and to not really know what to do. I used to work for the Red Cross's disaster assistance team. And so I was trying to figure out, should I be volunteering? What does it look like? It's a very small island with limited resources. What does my presence mean? You know, I was having a real like critical conversation. Like, yes, I can donate money and I have, and we'll put some donation links in the show notes. Absolutely. But the, my body can do more than my wallet. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Like, and, and because and that's the tension. Yeah. And because you've already got ties to it and you know it, there yeah. must be a, a feeling of needing to go. Yeah. There's um, a
1: very strong pull. There's a very, very strong pull. But there's also that kind of tension of knowing that, yeah, you can just throw a bunch of bodies into a space. But is that helping or hurting? And what does that mean? And mm. But I
0: guess also the recovery process, you know, it won't be days. It'll be months years so you know whether you go next week or in a month or three perhaps even sometimes from our experience the the people that come a bit later you know after the first immediate recovery process may even be more helpful because it it enters an almost internationally forgotten space right people go maybe help but then there's so much more after the first month or two sure
1: yeah and and it's going to be a really really long time and The spirit of Maui is very, very strong in terms of people taking care of each other and looking after each other, which is really heartening to Mm. see and to hear about from my cousins and and things about people just kind of going and bringing gasoline and taking their trucks and just going and helping move stuff around for people um, and offering shelter. So I think the recovery space is going to be a really, really long one because people don't have homes because it's a place that's so special and so important to me. And is home to me. It just feels hard to not be there in it. But I think I have to just take a critical look at what my presence looks like and what it means. And taking the lead from Native Hawaiians who are saying what they need as well. Of like, you know, we're good on this. We're good on this. We're good on this. Here are the things that we need. And are those the things that we can... That I can do from this distance without creating kind of undue burden on people by being around, you know? I want to put the cape on and be like, yes, I have experience in this space. Let me contribute, but what's my unique contribution? And is that something different? So...
0: Yeah, that sounds like a very um, heartfelt sort of tension to be experiencing. Mm. So, yeah, and, and as Tia said, we'll put some links in the show notes for anyone who wants to support or find out more, even how they can. Yeah. Um, with Tia's recommendations, if
1: you're if you aren't somebody who looks at the show notes because I certainly am not, then uh, Maui Food Bank is a really good one. Pacific Whale Foundation is one; is an organization that operates tours to go whale watching. I've been on their tours a few times that they've been moving supplies um, from inter-island to bring them to Maui. So that's how they've been repurposing their, their big boats. There's loads of them. My recommendation will always be to... Look at the grassroots organizations who are doing this hard work and and requesting donations because the bigger the organization is, the higher the overheads. So you may be paying for something that's, you know, an administrative piece to, to let the machine run. But we know a lot about waste. So, you know, small, lean grassroots organizations in Maui they're going to really good places and there's a few places I'll put and a few um, people on Instagram who I know who are literally taking donations and like hand delivering them to families just in straight cash so there's lots of different ways to give but um, please do whatever it is
0: yeah please please do and sending lots of thoughts and love to everyone thank you for sharing
1: I hate it when you say that
0: why? because it's such a therapy phrase and I hate it (laughs) (laughs) but it's true like you've taken the time to share something that is vulnerable and has a lot of feeling on a podcast that's a lot so thank you for sharing with me and all the listeners
1: okay i've said i hate it when you say it and you say it again (laughs) you are rude so anyways how are you what basic bullshit are you doing with (laughs) (laughs) it (laughs) <laughs> from
0: one end of the spectrum <laughs> to the other um yes my basic bullshit um so i went on my first ever 15k run congratulations Can we, yeah massive congrats wait where is it <laughs> because that's the longest i've ever run yes and you know you just have to get in the mindset and you're like okay, i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it and i did it right so i went to my usual park a big park in london you know i'm running there to this park i'm in the mindset i'm like i've got this i've got this and then i see this kid dressed as like a weird fish (laughs) this like upside down fish on its head judgmental yeah and i'm like okay whatever like you know kids dress up they go to fancy dress parties at like 8 a.m on a sunday morning okay cool cool kid nice fish and i turn the corner and there's like a big sign in the park and loads of like inflatable things there's obviously like a festival going on and it's already quite busy And I'm like, it's fucking eight o'clock in the morning. Like, come on, what's happening here? And I see this sign that says trainers. And my first thought is, oh, like training, like sports training. Like, great. I'll just like blend in, be running around like all the other sporty people here. (laughs) (laughs) And then I see like a Pikachu. <laughs> like I get dressed as a Pikachu. And I'm like, hang on a minute. And then I look at the sign and it's like Pokemon trainers this way. <laughs> yeah, And I'm like, fuck's sake. So it turns out it's the Pokemon Go Festival that happens every year in this park. And it just happens to be already really busy at 8am in the morning. And I happen to have chosen to do my first ever 15k at this time in this park. And I'm like, whoa. So I start running around and I'm like, okay, it's fine. Like people are a bit more the other way. And I run past signs that say, you know, uv training this way and like i have to run past this massive rock boulder thing that they built with like a i don't know a squirtle or something (laughs) like in it (laughs) And I'm like, okay, whatever. And I just run around and up the hill and it's okay. And there are other runners and we're looking at each other like, yeah, what's going on here? And then I get to this other side of the park and oh my God, it is swarming. There are just people, Pikachus bloody everywhere. Charizards. Yeah, Charizards. (laughs) People dressed up and it's like really warm already, eight o'clock. And they're in like, you know, woolen outfits. And everyone's looking at their phone because, you know, they're trying to find the fucking Pokemon. So I'm trying to run and like having to like dodge through loads of people because nobody is looking up. Yeah. Everyone is just on their phone.
1: Meanwhile, you uh, are
0: running through the... Yeah, I mean, I was obviously like flashing through some Charizards because I was going really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was really hard. And me and any other runners were looking at each other like, what are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so then I only did another like half a lap and found another route. But, you know, of all the things to, to challenge me on my first 15K, it was a, a really unique one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, that's that's been my basic bullshit for the past week or so. I still love your basic bullshit. We have some letters. We do indeed. OK, so we have recently been talking about the Nexus. If you've listened to our last episode, go back and figure out what the Nexus is, because we probably don't know. <laughs> we're not going to talk about it again. Yeah. We know. We're just
1: not going to tell you again.
0: <laughs> so someone wrote to us and said, hey, Lauren and Tier I've been working on peace stuff for a while. We'd really like to chat on the whole humanitarian development peace mix. Here we're dealing with emergencies and conflicts side by side, even in the same community. How does the Nexus handle that? dealing with immediate help but not getting folks too used to aid so we don't mess up long-term peace and development work. Thanks for doing what you do. Cheers. I think it's a good question.
1: It's a good question. Maybe I've had too many mimosas. Uh, I'm just having a hard time understanding the question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I think from what I understand, the question is like so they have emergencies and conflict side by side and they're doing like humanitarian development and mix or they're trying to bring those two things together. But how do they do that without creating a dependency on aid? again because like the whole idea of around nexus is you do humanitarian immediate uh, longer term and you address like maybe conflict you're addressing community needs essentially but are you still reinforcing dependency because now you're just looking to address the need and therefore assuming that you're needed so it's kind of like going back to what you said earlier actually like are you needed because maybe that's the missing piece like with the humanitarian development piece you're assuming that it's one of those spectrum rather than maybe a blank which is no (laughs) Mm. not you
1: I don't think there's anything wrong with a little bit of dependency because we all need a little bit of help. It's when you make a business out of sustaining that dependency, like that's the problem that I've got is when the not-for-profit sector has created a business around keeping people dependent on them versus like you need help, I'm going to help you. You can lean on this support for a bit of time. But what I'm doing is building in the pieces that you need so that you can, like, this is the community resilience stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So this is ownership and resilience.
0: And I do think that that's a really good way to look at it because we have noted ourselves the danger of going from working in silos as organizations to then saying, oh, we need to do everything. And what's always been missing is that, are you needed at all? Yeah. conversation so this is the danger from going to silos to everything to then reinforcing the whole dependency cycle so so i think it's just about making sure that that question of why you needed at all and when you leave always coming with you
1: but we need to justify our own existence right sure because otherwise if that were the case if we adopted the model that i'm describing donors the disaster emergency committee what is it dc They'd stop giving it to the middle organization. They would just give it straight to communities. And then what happens to all these middle organizations? Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that there's anything wrong with with supporting communities and propping them up. That for a little bit of time, right? Like the whole goal is to bring the crisis down to a level that people can manage. The problem is, is that once you bring it down to that level, people don't leave. Hmm. You've sort of hit a really interesting
0: point there where in the process of asking somebody what they need and they say they need five things, you assume that you need to provide those five things rather than maybe an additional question of like, of those five things you need, which do you think we could support you with? Today, we're talking about Greenpeace and that they did this stunt that caused the UK government to cut ties with them essentially.
1: One component, one cog in the UK government. One cog, DEFRA, Mm. or what we're talking about is the cog. DEFRA being the... Department for... Environmental fuckery, really... Aggravating? I think there's like rural agriculture
0: in there, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Setting the scene, you may have all heard about this incident where Greenpeace went to Rishi Sunak, who is the UK Prime Minister, for those of my friends who keep asking me (laughs) who the UK Prime Minister is. Who is a billionaire. (laughs) Who is a billionaire.
1: Well, his wife is a billionaire.
0: Yeah, but he must... But like, it's her money. Yeah. Right, I hope so. Greenpeace went to Rishi Sunak's home, one of his homes, thank you. Four Greenpeace climbers covered Rishi Sunak's North Yorkshire mansion in 200 metres squared oil black fabric. And they like just climbed the roof and dropped it over the front of his house. And this was in response to the fact that Rishi was saying that the North Sea oil and gas could continue drilling during the summer and escalating climate impacts and generally... Criticism of the government's response to this. And I think they were, um, according to The Guardian, um, planning to hand out around 100 new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea. So this was the uh, incident. Maybe just to say in terms of the house and the stunt that nobody was home. They were in California and Greenpeace reportedly timed it so that they were in California or away from their home.
1: I just find it staggering as an American that you can get this close to a prime minister's home because this is the second time that Greenpeace has done this, right? Like they went and had a pool party at his house. Yeah,
0: well, they went outside and they went in. (laughs) No, but
1: I mean, like, they brought pool floats and were on (laughs) his property with both lights. Yeah. Like, if you... Yeah. I don't know. It just kind of shocks me that, like, how you can get so close to a head of state's home that you're on the roof. But, I mean, there was a lot of criticism in,
0: like, the North Yorkshire police response. The police were called to the scene around 8 a.m., And the protests concluded around 1 p.m. with five (laughs) arrests made. Sure. They said it was a major breach of security and there were investigations into how it happened. Other politicians like Priti Patel and Ian Duncan have all said, like, you know, how could have this happened?
1: But but the security of the prime minister's home, like we're kind of going on a tangential point, the security of the prime minister's home. Is that the responsibility of the local police? I wouldn't have thought so. No, you're right. Yeah, (laughs) It's not their fucking fault.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I also just think, although eight tabloid newspapers picked this up on international news the next day, and their entire front cover was not about the North Sea oil issue or whatever it was about how could this happen to the Prime Minister's House and the security breach? So and so very similar to that like the entire tabloid were like what the fuck how could this happen you know I think there's a question there around like was it an impactful protest in terms of what people ended up talking about sure. and do you need a stunt like that to just get Greenpeace on the agenda first and foremost yeah. you know like where is the line of this is an impactful protest or not
1: well we're talking about Greenpeace now because what's a face has now said that DEFRA won't have any contact with anybody from Greenpeace.
0: Theresa Coffey said they will sever ties with Greenpeace based on that stunt. Although I did read that Greenpeace have done stunts like this in other Prime Minister's houses before but this is the only time Ah. that they've really like you know said and I did go back and check what exactly they've been cut out of because they don't receive UK funding from the government. So they've been cut out of a a WhatsApp group (laughs) 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 that was talking about like you know Green green stuff. Sure. And they they got cut out of a meeting that they were meant to attend around I think ocean plastics.
1: Do you know what? We're always trying to cut ourselves out of meetings. So <laughs> I kind of feel like Greenpeace <laughs> maybe came out on top of this.
0: I, I think so. And their response to it has been really good in terms of you see? And and very much the UK government have stepped into the role of oh we don't care about climate change even if they didn't mean to sure and they basically cut out the biggest climate activists of any engagement with them what kind of story are you trying to tell here Deborah?
1: There would have been a discussion where they weighed the pros and cons at Greenpeace about like what this was, and they would have gamed this scenario. Oh, you mean
0: out. Greenpeace or DEFRA? Greenpeace.
1: Yeah. No, I don't I don't think the UK government yeah. games anything. <laughs> you mean they don't do a risk assessment? <laughs> Greenpeace would have said, okay, we're going to do this, but then potentially what happens based on this? They would have done some sort of scenario planning around mm. this situation. And either way, what we've come to is that UK government looks fucking stupid as shit. Yeah. They look like they don't give a shit about the environment. They look petty. As fuck, you're gonna dance around on my roof where no one gets hurt. It's a fucking mansion. No damage, making a point, no damage, no one is harmed. And now you're gonna block me from our WhatsApp group. (laughs) What? Like, oh, it's like fucking Friendster, where you're like, Yeah, yeah, okay. Basically, Defra was like, We're unfriending you. you're not my friend anymore so you can't come to my birthday party
0: that is really funny I wanted to read out a couple of tweets We've talked about Greenpeace Kind of coming out on top Defra looking like shit But you've also got the tabloid And the public That kind of jumped Into the space as well Tabloid being very much On the government's side It seems And the public Having that very mixed reaction
1: I don't think they're On the side of the government But I don't think They're on the side Of like the radical left Which is where I would Put Greenpeace Yeah yeah
0: exactly Somebody called Chris Bettle Said and he quotes Two things The tabloids Climate activists Are protesting the wrong way They're disrupting The lives of ordinary people Greenpeace piece okay well we'll protest at one of the prime minister's houses then and the tabloids not like that (laughs) so you know this kind of like you've got protests that are happening and blocking streets and cars and normal people so then they went to the prime minister's house and now that's still not it
1: this is kind of a reference to the just stop oil protests where they were like stopping traffic through central london and that's disrupting the ordinary person Yes But then you go to a billionaire's house and Oh sorry, one of <laughs> the homes of a billionaire
0: Right, and someone else at Parody underscore PM said When someone said Greenpeace were on my house I said Downing Street They said no So I said Chequers They said no So I said my Kensington Muse house They said no So I said my apartment in South Kensington They said no So I said my Santa Monica penthouse They said no <laughs>
1: <You> know, <so laughs> like Again, how many
0: houses and does this really matter? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it's really kind of bringing this conversation to life. I don't understand how the every person connects to Rishi Sunak. Yeah. And vice versa, right? People who live in poverty or live below the average living wage, they experience climate change disproportionately from the wealthy, and I would put billionaires in the super wealthy. So Rishi Sunak does not know what you're talking about when you're talking about climate change and how it impacts you. Even if you're describing the things that might impact you, he doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't have lived experience of that.
0: Yeah, I will just give two more tweets though, just for a balanced perspective. You know, they were feeding our argument. Okay, I have
1: a, I have another beef about balanced perspectives. But go ahead. Okay, do you want to do that now? It's just like, what is the utility of a balanced perspective if actually what you're doing is you're just feeding the algorithmic machine that is sharing propaganda? Yes, let's see what you say.
0: No, but (laughs) what you're saying is, whatever you're looking at, is it really balanced because it's been dictated for you? And secondly, I mean. Let's not forget, I've also chosen these tweets.
1: <laughs> I would just say, what's the utility of giving a balanced perspective if one is objectively shit? <laughs> That's more what I mean. I, okay, I'm, I'm okay. thinking about like when CNN brings on like a liberal and a hard right person. Mm. Like you've got one person who's on there who's clearly just lying and alternative narratives. And then you have somebody who's trying to adjust it. So the uh, principle of balanced perspective, I just, no. Nah. I'm not here for it. Okay. But I fine. really want to hear what you have to say because I care about you and I think you're a good person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to say that these are not my opinions. <laughs> Just a current caveat. It's too late. Anyway, so this person, well, Ben Leo of GB News said, one last point on Greenpeace. It doesn't matter if the house was empty. I was burgled at 16 when I was inside and it terrifies you for life. Soon next young daughters will have watched that crap unfolding on TV. How are they going to feel returning home?
1: Okay. First off. I'm assuming, as in the same way that all first children are protected, that they have their own security. The reason there was no security there is because they weren't home.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a
1: a good conclusion, yeah. Because
0: surely, like, if they were there, there would be cars and people on the street and They have to have
1: their own security. If you're a billionaire and one of your parents is the prime minister, Mm. if you don't have security, that's kind of your dad's fault. Yeah, yeah. So handle your boy, right? The argument doesn't actually make that much sense because... The assumption is that there's just two children of the prime minister just vibrating in the house by themselves. Like that's not a scenario that I could imagine happening.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're just trying to make it as if something like it's just not a. The, this is the this scenario.
1: is the every person argument that actually doesn't apply to billionaire <laughs> children of right. prime ministers, right? right? Like it doesn't actually make yes, sense.
0: Yes, exactly. Okay, someone else called Norman Brennan said, "Policing is not just broken; it's shattered. We've lost control. These groups, Greenpeace, just." Stop oil, extinction, rebellion. They're like domestic terrorists.
1: Okay, let me tell you what a domestic terrorist is first. Yeah, yeah. Mm. As an American, let me talk to you about domestic terrorists. They are people who come from within your society who go around and harm people for the purposes of spreading fear and Terror To bandy about the word domestic terrorist in the context of somebody who's doing a non-violent protest is one, a complete, a generous perspective would be that it's a complete misunderstanding of what these words mean. Two, it's a rewriting of the narrative of what is actually happening. I mean, I was tangentially part of what some may call eco-terrorist movement. <laughs>
0: but what point does that transition to terrorism you're saying eco-terrorists now
1: yeah so eco-terrorists were people who were like blowing up shell stations or blowing up cars in parking lots and stuff to protest big oil basically so you're you're actually breaking something you're damaging something you're creating fear so if for example you were to put some incendiary devices into a what's it called a place where people sell cars what's that called
0: Car yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And the point is about environmentalism, and you're countering the narrative around the expansion of vehicles or whatever, or people having loads of cars or whatever. That would be considered eco-terrorism from some perspectives. Okay. The word terrorism is a perspective issue, right? I maintain people used to call Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Yes. Like it's a perspective issue. I
0: also just think that like this person's tweet is inciting fear. That it actually, they're being a bit of a terrorist right now I know they're not damaging anything or whatever but from the perspective of trying to incite fear because they're using things like we've lost control you know I feel that there's a kind of like trying to rattle the holy shit you know.
1: There is some kind of bot language in there to be fair.
0: It could be, yeah. (laughs) Is Norman Brennan a bot? (laughs)
1: There's some some bot language because like you know there's certain like words you want to say and phraseology you want to hit to Mm. kind of trigger people's emotions. Yeah. If at any point in time what you're doing is damaging something or breaking something or putting in an incendiary device that you think you have control over, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but who's to say somebody doesn't come in after hours when you set that thing light right yeah i would consider that to be an act of extreme violence do i think it's necessary sometimes it's really hard to say it's really hard to say because in existential fights in things that are about whether some groups of people live die thrive it may be necessary sometimes you have to fight for these things right the civil war for example Although it's kind of a complicated picture about what the Civil War was really about. But at the end of the day, we got emancipation for black people, right? Yeah. So it's a complicated story. Yeah. But the fundamental piece that I come to is we cannot bandy about this word terrorism Especially when you're applying it to something that is the definition of a non-violent protest. Oh, 100%. No one was hurt. And they planned it Nothing as Nothing was damaged. It's yeah. basically like a sit-in. So you can't ever use the word terrorist. Because let's look at the ways that we think about terrorism. ISIS. Do you think ISIS would just be doing sit-ins and shit? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. So you can't put those two in the same space. It feels like bot language in one interpretation. Or... What's this person's name? Norman Brennan. Norman Brennan is just a bit of a ding dong. That even sounds like a bot Yeah like a Let's check name.
0: who Norman Brennan is N- Norman like I a, think he uh, might even be Worked for GB News as well Is let's, GB News a thing? Yeah Great Britain News Is it? I agree And I think In all of this And in, in what Just Up Oil did Extinction Rebellion Greenpeace well, And what they continue to do People are still not Talking about Like what it is They're trying to stand up for You know We spend so much time Talking about the security How these people Are holding up people's lives When the big issue here Is climate change And the North Sea
1: drilling That might impact you, Norman Brennan. <laughs> okay, so I can confirm that Norman Brennan appears to be a human. Okay. <laughs> 60,000 followers on Twitter. A London police officer retired in 2009. Oh. Campaigner on police protection and media. Oh, oh. and media commentator on gun and knife crime and the effects of homicide. It
0: feels like then they definitely shouldn't be bandishing around that word if they've got that kind of experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you know what you're talking about, you definitely can't be using it. <laughs> but this is, people have always co-opted the words radicalization, the words terrorist. Mm. They take the word and then they apply it. And they stick it wherever they want for their own agenda. Okay. Right? This is why it's such a highly politicized word okay. is because the minute you hear it, you're like, yeah, yeah, has you, reaction. You think the worst. it triggers something in your mind and that's why people use it to be advantageous to whatever messages that they're trying to send, right? Okay. You know, I do have some feelings that the radical feminists of, of us should just start using that. Feminist terrorists? No, like maybe like <laughs> vagina terrorists. Hey. <laughs> no, but not all women have vaginas, I suppose. So maybe yeah. with, what's a terrorized... Yeah something. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. Okay, we need to workshop this. (laughs) If you know a way that we can work the word terrorist into stuff, because that's what you want. People use it to trigger
0: very extreme emotions. But that was why people started saying radical feminism. Because the word radical, I also think, has similar connotations. Maybe not to the same extreme, but it has a sense of, oh, you've gone like really, really far one
1: way. Radical continues to mean anything that's outside of the status quo, right? Mm. So it used to be, oh, they're radicals. But then it was like, oh, we're radical. <laughs> right. And, and then now, it became part of the status quo. And now it's, no, they're radicals. And now it's, oh, we're radicals. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of like come back around in a circle because radical used to be a word that we would put on somebody else. Then we took it. Then mm. they put it back out for like radicalization, for example. So this is a little bit like taking... And then the, we took it back.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a little bit like taking the word queer, right? Think about the word bitch. We, okay. Bitch. Yeah.
1: You bitch. I'm a bad fucking bitch. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I like it. I like think it. About, That's like, a good example. It's it's kind of like that. Okay. Radical is used to describe anything that sits outside the status quo. If you want to be outside of the status quo, then you're like, yes. Okay. I'm fucking radical. Well noted. If you don't want to be out there, then you feel like, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Only radicals here. I'm an island unto myself. I know. think the robot's less radical. No, I turned that robot off. Oh. I was <laughs> <laughs> having a hard time. Okay. I think it could only do about 13 minutes and then it's just. Okay. Like, uh, so we need to be a bit strategic about
0: That's good need. to know.
1: Yeah. But we've got these ones. We've got fucking cameras all over the
0: place. Hey. Norman Brennan, one. Suck a fat one. <laughs> so that was the balanced perspective. <laughs> <laughs> defra based on everything that's happened with greenpeace so now a bit, a bit of a crossroads about what to do well isn't she what's her name coffee Teresa coffee yeah Teresa coffee isn't
1: she about to be fired anyways
0: yeah that does seem impending bible but given that rishi sunat needs to probably like reshuffle his cards but you know
1: if you're gonna hand out a hundred new oil and gas licenses
0: it's wild in today's world that that's, that what I like now is that I think the tide has shifted in the public space too, in that like suddenly people are experiencing 40 degree summer heats, things that are making people go, oh shit, that may not have done before, right? And so suddenly a prime minister saying, I'm going to have a new hundred licenses, that's not as like, okay okay let's just go with it sure and so i'm kind of hoping that if they continue on this path they're kind of done for really
1: i have a few things to say about this one how have the tories managed to stay in power for this long is it because they keep resigning because they're shit and they fuck things up so substantially but i don't understand can they just keep resigning and keep staying in power like when did the election yeah next year would that happen anyways yeah That would have happened anyways. Yeah. Okay. I think also a lot has happened in the past four years. But I mean, so who was the first one? David Cameron. David Cameron. Was he the first one or was there someone before him? No, the first one in this cycle. Okay. So after the Brexit vote, he called the referendum for Brexit. Yeah, so he fucked us with that first. Yeah. Thank you, you fucking fuckhole. (laughs) I lost so much in foreign exchange fluctuation because of that. You fucking motherfucker. So he started it. Would he have continued to be prime minister until this period of time if he had stayed in place? What year was that? Two thousand sixteen. Sixteen.
0: So no, there would have been, there's an election. Two thousand sixteen. Two thousand seventeen. Sixteen. Okay, I was in Lebanon. There was a calm down. <laughs> I just remember it so well. There was another election, maybe in twenty twenty. Yeah, it must have been in 2020.
1: I just feel like it's changed hands so many times that it feels like they're kind of riding on these changes. But
0: who took over from David Cameron when he resigned? Was it Is Boris? That, no, it wasn't Theresa May. Oh, yeah, Theresa May. And then I think was there There must have been an election because between was 2016... Was there a general election? Yeah, there was. Because between 2016 and 2020, and now that's too long. Like there was an election. It's every four years an election happens in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I think the election may have been in 2020. Who did you vote for? I think I may have voted for Labour. I definitely vote for Labour, in fact. The reason I'm hesitating is because I was thinking, did I vote by post? Because I was not in the UK at the time.
1: Elections change to every five years now. Oh, when? The next one in 2024. After the 2010 general election, the coalition government enacted the fixed term parliaments. Oh, no, this is parliament. Is that the same? I don't understand your government. But anyways, the next election will be in 2025.
0: No. Yeah. You're joking. I'm not joking. Why don't you know your government? I know you are joking. I'm not joking. I cannot do 2025. Should we go away? I just don't know if I can be here anymore. (laughs) Where can we go? (laughs) So it was Gordon Brown, Labor. Yes. David Cameron was the first one. Then Theresa May. 16 to 19. Then
1: Boris, then Rishi. Oh, I don't know, that's gone. Okay, so my point is, there could conceivably be another person. It just feels like the Tories have been here for a fucking thousand years.
0: Oh my God. I can't believe that. I thought it was next year. I feel
1: really taken aback. Okay, but what were we saying just before that? I cannot have another Tory government for 18 months. What were we saying just before that? Because I had two points. Oh, does this mean empathy doesn't exist? Because people are seeing it and feeling the implications of the climate crisis now. Whereas we've been warned about this for decades. Yeah. It's only the point at which I feel it now do I say, oh shit, something... This is weird. Yeah, but
0: there is something in that. But it's too late. There is 100% something in that, I think, around, like, needing to be interacting with it to be like, okay. And especially as climate change gets closer and we experience like 40-degree heat summers and people I know being affected by wildfires, families of families and, like, people in Portugal, you know, there's a degree of, okay, it's here, Yeah, And so I do think that people maybe needed to say Oh shit But then the worrying thing is As you've mentioned Is like how far does that need to go To reach a billionaire
1: You know for them to go Oh shit Where is empathy? I shouldn't Mm. have to rely on my lived experience Before I feel Before I act I should see that people are suffering I don't know, maybe it just feels like it hits a little different because of the stuff that's happening in Maui, which is in part climate change, which is in part invasive grasses, which is in part emergency management system failures. There's a number of critical failures that led to that. Yeah, You cannot deny that a fucking hurricane blew wildfires into Maui. You can't deny that there's something off with the planet and she be pissed. So... If you're going to, like, release a 100 new fucking contracts without a recognition of the fact that the rest of the world is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. But also, how much does this this tiny fucking island matter, right? Like, you are not the biggest producers of shitty stuff in the environment.
0: Yeah. And I have seen if the UK was flooded, what would be left and what
1: wouldn't? What would be left?
0: So London would be gone. Bristol would be gone, yeah A lot of the east coast of the UK would be gone Because that's flatter land It would be mostly the middle Like the highlands in Scotland The middle A bit of Wales Because like the mountainous stuff in Wales A bit down here But a lot of the east coast would be gone And then the bit, you know, where it comes under Wales? Yeah The estuary into Bristol Like all of that would be flooded out Yeah
1: Okay London would be gone So we just need two ice caps to go yeah, and that's it.
0: Probably have to go live at my parents. <laughs> <laughs> You're moving back home, <laughs> okay. Safer land. Deb's Adam. I always she's knew, coming. as a kid, I always used to be scared that it would flood. Okay. I don't know where this anxiety came from. And my mom always used to be like, "No, no, we're fine. We're on higher ground here," and she's right. <laughs>
1: yeah, good job, Deb's. Okay, where is the highest ground we could go to? Nepal.
0: Well, yeah, probably. Okay, Mount Everest.
1: Oh no, I'm not trying. Okay. <laughs> That feels a- too high. <laughs> okay, can I get the band there? Oh,
0: that might be a bit tricky.
1: Okay. I can get the band to Scotland for sure. Yeah, or Chamonix. Yeah, I can definitely get it to Chamonix. The problem is, is that I really like Lowland Scotch, so...
0: <laughs> just to go and like get it before it. Lowland Scotch.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'll drink any kind of Scotch, but I'm just saying going back to Greenpeace right what's going to happen moving forward I mean
0: do Greenpeace just continue doing the radical or like these stunts I does it yes. matter that the UK government has cut them out
1: no I am actively trying to remove myself from WhatsApp groups I'm doing it all the time and my friends get so pissed off. I thought you were going to say I'm actively trying to remove myself from the UK <laughs> no I've got all these friends they like put me in their WhatsApp groups for like brunch and stuff and I'm like cool You've organized this for this singular event, now that's gone. six so years down the line we don't all need to still be in this group that's right everyone's got residual groups I just, I just ghost these fucking groups I'm like bye bye, bye,
0: bye, bye the bye, 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 bye. only way they pop back up again is like if somebody's left yeah yeah I remember doing this thing as a kid on MSN do you remember MSN yeah you know where he's invite two people and leave <laughs> <laughs> talk bye
1: I don't remember doing that shit but yeah that's funny so the implications for Greenpeace don't feel that significant right it's the same with us right like we do this podcast we drop hard truths on people and we had someone say well aren't you worried about your clients Well, if our clients are offended by the things that we're saying or our clients aren't aligned with what we're saying in some way and to the point where they wouldn't want to work with us as opposed to wanting to work and collaborate or whatever, yeah, then we wouldn't want to work with them anyways. So I guess that's the thing for me. It's like Greenpeace would have made a calculated decision about like, what are the implications and what are the consequences of this action that they take? Greenpeace isn't just a bunch of people sitting around stinking of patchouli listening to the steel drum that's not what greenpeace is it used to be it's not that it's a very organized coordinated advocacy group they're a very powerful lobbying group Yeah, exactly. They're thinking about things, right? I like it a lot. I wish more groups were like Greenpeace. I love it. I went to them when I was at a festival. We'll talk about the festival I was at another time. But I was at a festival and they had a stand there and they put on VR glasses. You could put these VR glasses and be underwater. And it was to give you this feeling of what it's like being underwater and stuff. Wow. It's very, very cool. And they're just talking about why it's important to protect the oceans and all that stuff. If you've got fucking like $600 VR headsets that you can be just tossing around at festivals, you're an organized advocacy group
0: yeah and you're creative as fuck i love it i love yeah. their creativity i feel like i have an activist that sits in me that would just love to be a part of that mm. in it i'll be there with my wetsuit on right outside rishi's house but your social anxiety would stop that oh no i would go would yeah 100 if I, someone was like we want you to be part of this i'd go would you yeah definitely
1: what if i was like lauren you've got work tomorrow
0: well, you would not care because you, you'd just be like, <laughs> that is not you. <laughs> you'd be like, do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> that just wouldn't happen. But anyway, Greenpeace after this have since written an open letter to Sunak saying that his response to stonewalling all of this is just a demonstration of their commitment to climate change. Yeah. And they've said that they've got like more and more of a bunker mentality refusing to engage with civil society experts. That's so they've taken what's happened and then, you know, voiced it further they're like i see you exactly yeah i'm really glad we talked about this because i feel like it's a lot of what should be done moving forward and it really highlights the difference between the public and the government and potentially the biggest hurdle in getting climate change or addressing it as much as it needs to be yeah you know everyone knows it's simmering everyone knows something needs to happen but if you've got a government in place it's just so diluted you know
1: anyway Tell me about your lessons, lessons,
0: lessons. I'm going to keep my lesson very relevant, actually. Well, Um, I would love it if
1: they were all relevant.
0: (laughs) No, to this topic. I've learned a lot this week. A lot. I always try and invest in learning. We like to learn, don't we? Yeah. We're a good learning partner. Hint, hint. So this week I was watching a documentary about Borneo, which is an island that I've been to myself a very long time ago. And... It was following a community that lives on the water around the islands of Borneo and they're called the Bajau community and they've been living there for, you know, hundreds of years and actually they say their pancreas and parts of their body, some of their organs are 15 times bigger than ours because they've been swimming and diving nice. for a really long time so their blood circulation is, in the water is amazing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting that reminder of human evolution to the environment right. I think is really interesting. Anyway, they collect sort of plastic on the beaches and they've said over the years this has increased and increased and increased and they collect the plastic and they make things out of it so they melted down some blue plastic bottles they found into the shape of a crab and they added little eyes beads for the eyes and they had like little bottle legs and stuff and then they put it down to try and catch the octopus or the octopi mm-hmm. um, in their fishing which I thought was just so clever mm-hmm. um, and a very innovative creative way to use the plastic that rocks up yeah, And they were trying to trap a big red octopus. But anyway, I learned that people are being innovative in what walks up on beaches. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but people are using what comes up.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you need to really keep track of that. Plastic fake crab. Yes, but you know, I tried to to catch an octopus and I ended up choking a turtle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. But hopefully, you know, that wouldn't be the case. But anyway,
1: yeah, I'm sure they've got a leash on it or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was like you know, it's got a wire trap, and they, yeah. yeah, exactly, and they put it down. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I also did a lot of other things, but I don't know if they're that interesting.
1: I'd be interested in the success rate because I always thought that octopi were very like, highly intelligent. Yeah, so I wonder if they're able to just certain the difference between a real and a fake crab. It
0: said that, yeah. It said that it had to be really good mm, to to, to convince an octopus, yeah. yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting. I mean, it did look a bit, the legs I weren't so sure about, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the level of, <laughs> would need to be for an octopus.
1: I mean, what you do is you melt it down, you sell it to tourists because we're dumber. Yeah, they probably would buy a plastic <laughs> crab. And then it'd probably end up in the sea again in 10 years. Yeah, but, you, to, you know, yeah. what
0: do you do? It Either way, exists. it's going
1: in the sea. Yeah, oh,
0: sadly. one Way for it to not sit on the beach, I suppose. Sure. Become okay. useful. I also learned a lot about bats and stuff. At, at I like section. how you're
1: learning because I originally thought that this section was about like our <laughs> internal reflection, but you're just like, I learned this thing.
0: <laughs> there is that. But I think this week I learned that I love learning about all of this stuff. It doesn't okay. matter what it is, but these things stay with me if I'm like, wow, wow. And I have to tell people. Sure. I also learned that there is like a massive population of bats. That live in the rainforest of Borneo, like unbelievable. And they live in this cave that's imagine, 30 miles long, and a jumbo jet can fly through it. It's Doesn't that big. Me. And it's just the biggest concentration of bats that there is 15 kilometers of their shit that's, you know, yeah. accumulated. And there's the biggest, apparently, glo- on Earth that they know of, a swarm of cockroaches that live in that shit. On Earth. I believe
1: the technical term is guano.
0: <laughs> what, really? Yes. What's a guano? Guano is what you
1: call bat shit. Oh, really? Guano.
0: Okay, so they live in that. I was just was like, ugh. But anyway, that's
1: an knew? Ace Ventura reference for anybody who is uh, forty and above.
0: <laughs> so that was that, really. Okay. But yeah, in terms of my personal learning, that's it. I learned that I like learning okay. <laughs> about these things. <laughs> What did you learn this week?
1: I learned that everything is just easier said than done, right? Like we talk on this episode about recognize where you are, where you need to be. Are you supposed to be there? And this whole thing about Maui and being there or not and how strong that pull is to go home. Yeah, I learned that it is really hard and I've always known that it's hard to figure out what your place is and where it should be and where your greatest contribution and efforts are. And I think we always think that if I'm there, I'm contributing, I'm giving everything, right? But that might not be how people are receiving it or what people want from you. And I think that's different. And so it's been really hard to listen And try to be open to what people are saying on social media or the, what do we call it, the coconut radio or the coconut telegram, right? Mm. What people are saying in these informal spaces about what it is that they're needing and to think about and reflect about whether or not you're making a unique contribution to that space or you're just taking more from people who don't have very much so yeah just learning that we say this on the podcast all the time like oh you shouldn't fucking be there like localize whatever but it's hard yeah it feels really hard when you have an emotional connection to a place because if somebody were to say yeah yes local efforts are the most important i would say but am i not part of the local you know what i mean Yeah, that's hard. And it just sort of reinforces that displaced feeling of people who live, particularly, I think, military families and children of this kind of, there is no home.
0: Diaspora in general, you want to feel a sense of belonging wherever you are.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if I'm not home there, then where am I home, I guess, is a kind of hard thing. So home is wherever you are. It's not, though. (laughs) It's not. There's very specific things that make me feel drawn to where I think that home is. Mm. And that might change over time and it evolves and it's different. But there is a home and there are homes and there are places that call us to be back there. And I guess just what it feels like to be part of a diaspora and know that part of your job is to suffer the tension of not being needed or wanted in a place that you need and want to go, I guess. So, yeah. but <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that is a very profound ending to this
0: episode. I nearly
1: cried. I feel a bit teary. But I think it's the mimosas. So let's just end here.
0: No, but I think we should also just say that it's great to hear a bit more about their experience and your connection to a place that
1: you grew up. If you say thank you for sharing, I'll throw that. I drink know. Right I was like, what face. else can I say? I'll I was throw like, that drink straight th- in your I was face. Like, uh, <laughs> and there we are. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is the journey to transformation. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation.
1: Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast.
0: Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.